0: Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads.
1: But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.
0: Hey, it's Anna. I want to let you know that in this episode, I talk with Margot Price about losing a child soon after childbirth. If that's not something you want to listen to right now, you might want to skip this one.
2: I thought, you know, this is like, this is karma, and I deserve this. But he doesn't. Uh, My son didn't. This
0: is Death, Sex, and Money. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sale. Margot Price was nominated for a Best New Artist Grammy in 2018—15 years after she moved to Nashville when she was 20. This year, Margot turns 40, and her new album starts with the song, Bend to the Mountain, where she writes about the jagged path of her musical career and her different personas. They've included a classic country songstress, the female lead of an all-dude rock band, and a solo artist who turns up her own amp.
3: To be a lover, queen and a drifter, a cowboy devil, a bride and a, boxy, a pilgrim and a thief, but it was me
0: When Margot and I spoke, she was at her home outside Nashville, where she lives with her kids and her husband, musician Jeremy Ivey. It was a rare moment of quiet. While well, my children are at school. Uh
2: huh. My husband is outside with a chainsaw chopping up a tree that fell in our yard. And I am just kind of in our little den here. We have a kind of a makeshift recording studio, music room. It's connected to our laundry room and it's where
0: my cats hang out. <laughs> 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 it sounds cozy and sordid. The life of a musician who has made it after years of uncertainty. Like the central question of her memoir, which she called Maybe We'll Make It, has been answered. But this is actually a time of major upheaval for Margot. One of the biggest during her nearly 20-year relationship with her husband. In large part, she says, because she gave up alcohol two years ago.
2: It's It's been really the most challenging thing that we have went through
0: since we have lost a child. Their child, Ezra, died a few days after he was born. He was a twin. His brother, Judah, is now 12. And they also have a three-year-old, Ramona. Back when Margo was about Ramona's age, she was going through the first big upheaval of her life.
3: Times, they were tough Growing up at home My daddy lost the farm When I was two years old Took a job at the prison, working second shift. And that's the last
0: time
3: I'll let them take what should be his.
0: I want to go back to when you were a kid, to another transition. And when you were really little, when your family and your extended family lost the farm that they had worked um how many generations had that farm been in your family
2: you know i think my dad would have been the fourth
0: margot's family lost their farm in illinois in the mid-1980s they couldn't cover their debt payments and keep the farm running for them it was a new grain silo they'd had to build with borrowed money but thousands of farms also went under in the u.s during this time as interest rates went up and the price of major farm crops collapsed. There was just such a sense of shame
2: around it. And um, even now, some of my uncles and uh, some of my family back home, it's like, they just prefer that I just shut my mouth and hmm. and not talk about it. Um And but you know, it was always there. It was the elephant in the room, for sure. And there were a lot of elephants in the room. It wasn't that wasn't the only thing that it affected, you know, it was, I don't think that um, I don't think a lot of their mental health was being taken care of. I think there was um, there was a lot of stuff that was really swept under the rug. And That is kind of still how a lot of my family is today. It's like, just put on a smile and pretend like it's not happening. Just like, what did Kurt Cobain say? A denial.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you think of, like, for your family, was losing the farm and that betrayal by the system, by the bank, did it create a sort of sense of, like, screw it, just do what you love and try it? Um, because this system isn't built to help people like us succeed?
2: Oh, without a doubt. I think, I always say there's a lot of uh, similarities kind of in farming and in being a musician, because it is a path that is kind of paved with uncertainties. But I also saw that you could work your whole life building something and that it could just slip through your hands, you know, within seconds, and I think that that all probably started my um, my distrust and my disdain for mm, authority, for the government, <laughs> for <laughs> politicians, for all of it.
0: were first drinking as a teenager like how did you like when you were going out what did you learn about how you were as a drinker
2: well I felt like it was the ultimate rebellion I did not feel very popular um many times in my in my youth and I wanted to uh, you know to be well liked and to be funny and but I just loved it it gave me confidence it, you know people would talk about how how wild I was the night before and you know how how I was um this character in a in a in a book or in a
0: movie oh a character like what like what kind of character like like fun like the one that was sort of like the middle of the action
2: Kind of like, yeah, being being everybody's entertainment, I'm like uh, a bit of a protagonist. Where it was like, oh, you never knew what she was going to do. She's <laughs> and I started building that um, that persona very young, and so that was why it was incredibly difficult to eradicate from my life because it was it was just so deeply ingrained in my personality I had really worked hard to become the bad girl and to um you know I mean I think even when I go back and I look at my early press cycles it was always like uh, country badass American badass like you know I'm just I was so tough because I could just hold my own and just keep up with the men (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. mm-hmm uh-huh yeah and at the same time, it's interesting that you think of it as a way of rebelling because it sounds like um another thing you you mentioned in your book is when you started drinking, people commented that you could hold your alcohol like a price, like it was something that was part of your family culture, like your your parents liked to party too,
2: yeah, yeah, I think it just it was something that I'd always kind of seen, modeled to me, it's like if you needed to relax, if you needed to um, blow off steam, then that was the way to do it.
0: Alcohol was also around a lot when Margo arrived in Nashville after dropping out of college. There were shift drinks at her waitressing jobs, boozy open mics, and lots of parties with fellow musicians. That's where she met her husband, Jeremy. They were both young and pretty new to town, and sparks flew between them romantically and creatively. It was
2: all the the emotions, like, of just... You know, really intense love, but also passion for the same, all the same things. Um, and, you know, a lot of competitiveness as well. Yeah. Yeah. Like, did what was that like? I was, you know, I think it was mostly healthy in the early days. It would be like, if he wrote a song, then I would have to sit down and try to write one that was way better. And then... <laughs> You no, know, we'd always be like, the ultimate compliment would be like, oh, I'm so jealous. I wish I wrote that song. And um, we definitely, once we started working together more, it was really cool because it was like, okay, now we have a band. We are teammates. We are like, you know, compatriots. and uh, mm-hmm. we're gonna, It's us against the world. It was just so nice to have have somebody in my corner
0: Do you think that like when you think about the early years of your career when you both were living hand to mouth, you know, working jobs for wages, then selling all your stuff, then hitting the road, then coming back, um, did it feel in a certain way like that teaming up with him gave you permission to take more risks because you both you had like a partner in living a sort of very tenuous life?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, him and I, we knew at times that our parents would be worried about us or that they wouldn't approve of, you know, where we were living if it was a place of squalor or, um, you know, whatever it was. If it was me deciding that I was going to dye my hair almost black and grow out my armpit hair. And you know, I knew like that's really gonna make my mom upset. But he would be like, I love your armpit hair. That's <laughs> <laughs> your hair can be whatever color you want. And he was still there for me, you know, and and vice versa. He had he has very um religious parents. They're beautiful people and they've they've softened a lot in their older age, but um, you know, they they were always kind of coming to preach to us and and tell us, like, we better get right with God, or we were going to hell. And we were like, hey, well, at least we're going to hell together. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it sounds like growing up in a town where it felt like you didn't always feel comfortable and it felt ill-fitting to find somebody who could cheer you on as you, like, tried on different realities. It sounds like it must have felt really fun.
3: Yeah,
0: it was. I look back
2: on those days with a lot of fondness. And, you know, I think when we were in it and when we were living it, there was a lot of embarrassment and shame because people from our hometowns were just like graduating from college and getting great jobs and having children and weddings and, you know, buying the nice house and having the nice car. And we were, you know, at times we didn't even have enough money to make rent or we would, you know, didn't have enough money to buy groceries. And we were just like determined to be some kind of like um, anarchist version of of ourselves. And we really lived in this kind of bubble that was... (laughs) Maybe a little bit of a denial ourselves into how bad it was or what was going on, but to me and and to Jeremy, I know it was just like, well, this is just going to fuel the art and give us more more fodder and for the um yeah for the songs for the music.
0: Uh huh. Yeah, the idea of something that is going to fuel the art can be an excuse for a lot of bad behavior. <laughs> This is good for our creative juices.
2: <laughs> oh yeah. that old
3: myth. In my heart a twice size of God. Try to fill it up with so many things, still just lost.
0: Coming up, Margot talks about the death of her son Ezra, days after she and Jeremy first became parents. And then, yeah, I just got blackout drunk
2: because that was the only way that, again, I was taught how to cope with anything.
0: A few weeks ago, we asked you to share your current dilemmas about fear to tell us about the things that you're afraid of or have been putting off, even though you really want to do them. Some of you have already responded to share your fears around some big life decisions, whether or not to have kids, to get married, to leave your job. Thank you for sharing these questions, and we'd love to keep hearing from more of you. No fear is too big or too small. Maybe you want to try something new, like running a marathon, but it feels too hard to try. Or maybe you want to go skydiving, even though you're afraid of heights. Or maybe you're thinking about a dramatic life change and you seize up with panic when you think about carrying it out, but you can't figure out if that's your fear or your intuition talking. How do you know which fears to listen to and which ones to push through? We're putting together a panel of experts to give us advice, and we want to share your stories and questions with them. So record a short voice memo, no more than a few minutes long, and tell us if there's something you're afraid of, and if you could use some advice about how to be brave. Email it to us at deathsexmoney@wnyc.org. Let me tell you a good story. It was late on a Sunday afternoon, and my family and I had been away and rolled into the driveway, and everyone was worn out from traveling and getting hangry. But waiting for us was a solution. A hungry root box filled with healthy, grabbable snacks and a few different dinner meals to choose from. We tore into this thing like a pack of wild animals and ate all the snacks— but they were healthy, whole ingredients, fresh produce. And then we were set for dinner a few hours later, which only took about 15 minutes to prep and cook and get on the table. I was so grateful to my past self for doing my current self this solid by ordering this box. And it was easy. I took a short quiz to tell Hungry Root what kinds of meat my family eats, the sorts of flavors we like, any dietary restrictions we have, or just things we're trying to avoid, and when I wanted the box to be delivered. Right now, Hungry Root is offering Death, Sex & Money listeners 40% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to HungryRoot.com slash DSM to get 40% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com slash DSM. And don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts, or visit Slate.com slash DSM Plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks.
3: Hi, I'm Josh Levine. My podcast, The Queen, tells the story of Linda Taylor. She was a con artist, a kidnapper, and maybe even a murderer. She was also given the title The Welfare Queen. And her story was used by Ronald Reagan to justify slashing aid to the poor. Now, it's time to hear her real story. Over the course of four episodes, you'll find out what was done to Linda Taylor, what she did to others, and what was done in her name. The, the great lesson of this, uh, for me, is that people will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are. Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now.
0: This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Margot Price was in her mid-20s and still very much trying to scrape together a music career when she and her husband learned they were having twins. Then they discovered in a routine scan there was a problem. Those
2: conversations were the most difficult of my life. I mean me trying to explain what the doctor said to me as I was still processing it was almost impossible. Um, It was almost like they had, you know, prepared me at that moment um, for his death. And I was only, yeah, about 17 or 18 weeks pregnant. And, um... You know, he just he kept trying to calm me down and say like it can't be that bad, you know, it's you know, we'll go get a second opinion or, you know, whatever, um he was trying to say to me, but I knew that it was a very serious diagnosis. And um, you know, they just they gave me a bunch of pamphlets and the doctor came into the room and um, you know, he said that he was immediately going to have to have surgery after after his birth, and that that if he did make it through these first surgeries in his young life, that he would only live to be thirty, and that was the part of the the conversation that was just the most difficult to swallow. I just, you know, thought, how do you explain to your child? they probably won't live past 30. I just didn't, I didn't want him to have to go
0: through that. When you think back on those, um, those first days after you gave birth to your twins, um, you have one twin who you're able to hold and breastfeed, and another child that's in, the NICU preparing for surgery and you've just gone through C-section this major surgery, like what, do your memories look like hazy? Like how do you, when you think back on that and where your mind was, like what, how many ways did your attention feel divided?
2: Oh yeah, it was, oh, it was, um, one of the most painful times in my life. And I was just not even able to kind of comprehend everything that was going on. It all just, it didn't seem real. It seemed like, um, like I had kind of like woke up in this like warped reality where, you know it really i mean it sounds cliche but it just it was just this nightmare that you could not wake up from and um there was a lot of a shame and a lot of um, me thinking that it was something that i did that it was my fault and that i was being punished but it was almost just like i was just numb and then when they told me that he didn't make it through the surgery. Um, this was yeah, eleven, twelve 12 days after. Um that was when I it was almost like I woke up then and I I just could not um I just could not cope with anything anymore and um just came back to the house and my sisters took care of um of our surviving son and just absolutely um just you know wanted to shut everything off it was just it was just too hard and and then that was yeah just the the start of kind of pushing everything aside and not going to therapy because only damaged crazy people went to therapy
0: wait who taught you that
2: oh just society, my Everyone. Family, <laughs> my small town, yeah. <laughs> everybody. Yeah. So I, I wish that I would have dealt with things in real time, but I was nowhere near capable. I just didn't have the tools.
3: Catastrophe that is yours and mine. They say it takes time. Time time is all. I've got this time Once in a while.
0: How how do you talk about your son Ezra with with his brother Judah, with your your daughter Ramona, who's much younger? How how do you how do you talk about that as a family? Well we we always
2: just kind of told Judah from the very start. Like before he was even big enough to comprehend, you know, we would we would say, you know, we had a photo album and we would say, This is this is your brother, you were twins, you were in mommy's tummy at the same time, but you know, Ezra died and and you and that was just kind of it, you know? And um, so it was kind of, we didn't want it to come as a shock when he was like a teenager or something because we knew that he was probably already feeling that loss. Um, he was deeply bonded as as twins can be. Um, we knew that, that he was feeling it, um, whether or not he knew what he was experiencing. And recently... Actually, it was just last week. I was um, going through an old china cabinet that belonged to my grandmother, and I had a bunch of things in there. And I had the photo of the two of them framed, and it was just hiding in this china cabinet because I could not look at it and Mm. just not feel angry and not feel sad. And so just last week, I hung it up on the wall, and, and my yeah my daughter ramona she she saw it and she was pointing to all the photos and saying who is this and you know she's three and a half but I said well that's that's your brother and you know hopefully we're we'll meet him someday but um yeah it's I usually don't get um get too choked up about this
0: anymore but it's
2: uh sometimes you know sometimes
0: it just hits you. yeah, you just pulled the photo out and put it on the wall, Margot. You're not hiding it.
2: Yeah, yeah it only took me whew, twelve and a half years.
3: <laughs> Won't you tell me. You tell me is it's winning, learning like to you And you said it, oh, but say, say that it's not, not true. true. It's winning, winning.
0: Margot co-wrote this song, Learning to Lose, with her husband Jeremy. That it became a duet with Willie Nelson shows how spectacularly Margot's fortune shifted when she was signed by Jack White's record company in 2015. Her son Judah was school-age by then. Before that, there were years of patching together gigs, rent money, and crash pads on the road. For a lot of that time, Margot and Jeremy played in a band together called Buffalo Clover, until Margot started sleeping with their guitar player who was also married. She writes in her book, we were like Fleetwood Mac without any of the success. In your memoir you wrote about after after the death of your son um, an affair you had and you described it. Um, and it's something that you had disclosed to your husband um, years ago, but I wonder, Like, what's it, how often does that come back up? And did writing about it again force new conversations or revisiting conversations that you thought you'd gone through?
2: Yeah, a bit. Um, You know, I think a lot of people were shocked when they heard that Jeremy um, was, you know, kind of, not only just okay with me sharing those kinds of personal details about our marriage but that he encouraged me to be really transparent about what we went through because i think up until just recently i think a lot of our peers and a lot of our um, acquaintances and people on the outside probably were just looking at our relationship and saying like, oh, wow, you guys have such a perfect marriage and you just support each other through everything. And, um, it was, you know, it, it was, a lot of it was due to how often and how much I was drinking. And, um, you know, it just, I think that he has has forgiven me but it's harder for me to forgive myself um we did end up kind of talking about it when we went into um therapy together because it was just something that you know we did work through but it's you know it's it's my biggest regret i wish that i could that i could take I could take that back, but, um, I am really grateful that he has showed me, um, he actually just popped his head in here and asked if I want to, <laughs> if he should go pick up the kids.
0: <laughs> I said,
2: no, I will. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, it's something that's it's there and it can be a little bit of a um difficult hurdle to to work through but it's not as turbulent as it used to be i mean there's we have taken off the divorce word from the table it's like you know what let's just not threaten each other with that because we know we're not going to do it
0: <laughs> when did that happen when did you say let's stop threatening this
2: I think it was only about nine months ago, <laughs> uh-huh.
0: um,
2: you know we've we've went through a little bit of a tumultuous time with me quitting drinking. um We have had more fights since I quit drinking um, than we have in a long time uh-huh. it's uh I mean, you know, friendships have dissolved. There's people that I used to spend time with that. I just don't anymore. And, um, and then there's other people that I've kept my friendships with and, and they still drink and it doesn't feel weird because, well, I, A, I don't, uh, I don't live with them. I don't sleep with them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So with, yeah, I think with Jeremy and I, it's just that we are so used to doing every single thing together. Like, you know, BFFs, like if, if I'm doing something like he's there with me and with eradicating alcohol from my life, I have realized like this is a solo journey and like you're in it on your own. I mean, of course, it's nice when you can have a buddy, I'm sure, to quit with and like, you know, couples that quit together. Like, I'm sure that's really wonderful, but I've done the the growth on my own and, it, you know, I've ultimately had to realize that like, even though I have been in this partnership for half of my life. I am still my own person and it's been the best decision I've ever made. I had a this woman who's quite a bit older than me. Her name is Kathy and she is in this death metal band called The Great Sadness.
0: Oh <laughs> want to rock to some Kathy music. That sounds
2: perfect. <laughs> Kathy is like in her 60s, and she actually played the devil in my music video oh. um, for Went to the Mountain. Amazing. We got to talking, and, and she just turned to me and, you know, she's like, So, what's your story? What's your deal? And, you know, I started kind of giving her the cliff notes of my memoir and whatever. And she goes, oh, I've been sober for 26 years. Sobriety ain't for pussies. <laughs> I just was looking at her and I was like, you are the coolest, most beautiful, unapologetic person I have ever met. And I want to be just like you when I grow up. Hell yeah. That's, that's where I want to be.
0: That's Margot Price. Her latest album is called Strays and her memoir is titled, Maybe We'll Make It. You can see a list of all of her songs that you heard in this episode on our website at DeathSexMoney.org. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York, this episode was produced by Andrew Dunn. The rest of our team is Afi Yellow Duke, Zoe Azoulay, Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz, and Lindsay Foster Thomas. Our intern is Baze Hohen. The Reverend John Delour and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Instagram at AnasalePix, that's P I C S, and the show is at Death Sex Money on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you to Molly McCullough from Baltimore, Maryland, for being a member of Death, Sex, and Money and supporting us with a monthly donation. Join Molly and support what we do here by going to deathsexmoney.org slash donate. And speaking of money, Margo's now on the board of Farm Aid, the group Willie Nelson and others started during the 80s farm crisis, to support families like Margo's who were losing their farms. She and Willie have become friends and play together a lot, and she's nonchalant about it. In a way, I would not be. On my wall, I have a lot of family pictures, you know, all happy
2: photos. It's like both of my kids sitting on Willie Nelson's lap. and
0: that, That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how, how large is it? Does it take up a whole wall? <laughs> <laughs> I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC.